You are listening to Culture Machine Live, a podcast series dedicated to discussions of culture and theory. To find out more about the open access electronic journal Culture Machine, visit www.culturemachine.net. My name is Claire Birchall and today I'm at the first global conference on transparency research being held at Rutgers University and I've managed to catch Professor Mark Fenster from the University of Florida's Law School. Mark is the author of one of the seminal texts on conspiracy theories, that's Conspiracy Theories, Secrecy and Power in the American Culture, Uh, but his paper delivered in the conference is concerned with the development of the transparency movement in the States. Uh, welcome, Mark. Thank you for talking to me today. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm really interested in your move from cultural studies to law. Um, that's an interesting step. Could you talk a little bit about that move? Well, there are two reasons. One, uh, both of them I think are good, but one of them is less um, high, high-minded. Uh, <laughs> so let me deal with that one first. Yeah. Uh, The job situation for academics is not particularly good and wasn't particularly good 15 years ago. Uh, And I was at a job that was a perfectly good job, but one that I was somewhat frustrated with. And I was still young enough to decide to try for a second career. Uh, So that was one part of it. The other part of it was that the conspiracy theory book was not my dissertation. Uh, My dissertation was on popular music. And I found myself very interested in questions of state power as a result of the conspiracy theory book, which was not itself about state power, it was about popular conceptions of state power. But I really felt as though my training in cultural studies didn't give me much of a background in how the state and how bureaucracies actually work. Uh, And, you know, one can always do background reading in that. Uh, And, you know, if you do a good job, you can be quite credible at it. But I also wanted to have some experience in it uh, and to uh, think about those issues in very different ways than I would be able to think about them through a cultural studies background. Um, So that drew me to law, as particularly in the States, um, that is a pathway to power as well as a pathway to thinking about power. Uh, because so many of our elected officials are trained as attorneys, so many of our um, uh, high officials within administrative agencies are trained as lawyers. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a discipline and a disciplining uh, approach that I thought was worthwhile to try. Do you consider yourself as doing a cultural studies of the law? Well, yes and no. Uh, Law is a professional um, discipline in the States. Uh, uh, You get an undergraduate education and then you go to law school as a postgraduate professional education. Uh, So our students are there in a vocational training setting, Uh, although law has, both in the the Anglo-American setting uh, uh, generally, has a certain high-minded sense of itself uh, as being an intellectual profession, unlike, say, business. Uh, And so there is an intellectual aspect to legal education. Uh, But part of what one does is train lawyers. uh, And um, uh, and while trained as a lawyer, you know, I had some interest in the mechanics of law, the, the sort of technocratic aspects of law that are not especially intellectual and are not necessarily um, lending themselves to the insights of cultural studies. So sometimes, and particularly before I received tenure, 
uh, I can't say that my research was especially um, readable as uh, informed by cultural studies. But the work on transparency and the work that I've done on the intellectual history of law uh, have very much been informed by cultural studies. Uh, and while the citation patterns might not include lots of Stuart Hall citations, uh, there's a certain connection between uh, the two fields. That's interesting. I was thinking when you were saying that about um, uh, Larry Grossberg, who said that um, cultural studies practitioners need to do um, economics better than the economists now because you know the financial crisis and all that sort of thing and I was thinking when you were saying that well maybe we need to do the law better than lawyers or, or we don't want to leave law only right. to lawyers right. I suppose I think that's right well Larry was my dissertation advisor so <laughs> he must I'm, be uh, right <laughs> well not always but you know, in this one he might be uh, I think that that's right I mean it is uh, uh, it's too easy to be criticized uh, and dismissed for not knowing the basics of what it is that you're writing about. Uh, and um, in bad faith, people who are from within those fields can dismiss you if they feel as though you just don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I'm not sure doing economics or law better, quote-unquote, is, is what it is that you're trying to hit, because that suggests that there is some evaluative way, measure uh, that suggests that there is a better way of doing law or a better way of doing economics. There I think better ways. might just be a euphemism for more political right, in that sense, right, perhaps. Yeah, right, but. I think that's probably right. <laughs> um, Okay, and then in a similar way, um, could you pay, maybe just talk a little bit about your movement from thinking about conspiracy theory to transparency? You talk about your concern with state power right. and that that was an interest. Is that what led you into thinking about transparency? Well, of course, I could ask the same question of you, but, okay. uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, let me try this out and you can see if it fits. Uh, uh, transparency is, is, to me, the flip side, the flip question of conspiracy theory. Um, what interests me is how the state legitimates itself uh, and responds to radical doubt about its legitimacy. Uh, and, you know, that's sort of the broad brush way of, of understanding it. Uh, and um, I'm interested not only in that question of, you know, that sort of broad question of cultural and political theory, but also the complicated nature of how things actually work on the ground. I was, um, so uh, the, when I was in practice, uh, the firm that I worked for was a public interest firm that worked on environmental and land use uh, issues in Northern California. Uh, so we represented NGOs and folks who were trying to protect the environment against overdevelopment. Uh, and the, the transparency uh, case that I worked on, the open government case that I worked on, had uh, a small a relatively small city in uh, Marin County, which is just north of San Francisco, a very beautiful area, uh, that was uh, that had created a set of trails uh, for people to uh, to walk on and hike on, uh, people from the community and people from anywhere. And they bought a piece of property to just put a small parking lot in so people could drive there and then go on the trail. There was a very, very wealthy guy who lived in property adjoining the trail who didn't like the idea of these hikers going up uh, into, the, uh, uh, into the hills. Uh, and he fought tooth and nail as best he could, hired the best lawyers that he could, and spent as much money as he could to try to block 
the construction of this parking lot, using land use and environmental laws to do that. Um, he was losing on the legal question of could the city actually do this. But what he tried to do was to raise the expense of the city being engaged in this enterprise. And one of the things that he did was to make a significant amount of open government requests uh, uh, and, and open record acts requests uh, and require as many open meetings as possible and have his attorneys show up to these open meetings and sort of gum up the works as best he could raising the cost to the local government of engaging in this project. Uh, and this is a really interesting thought to me. You don't realize this in law school and you don't realize this from outside, but the compliance costs of being transparent are extremely high, uh, not only to the, the sort of bureaucratic agents within the government, but just to anything that the government is trying to do. Uh, and that got me thinking about the fact that the perfect the perfectly transparent government is the government that doesn't exist, or that exists as a night watchman state in a sort of Nozickian sense. So um, there is a certain element of transparency that is libertarian in the American way of knowing it. Uh, it is a radical doubt about the state. Uh, uh, the perfectly transparent state is the state that is open at all times, and for the state to be open at all times, it it almost inverts the panopticon uh, uh, so that you know the public can now view state actors at all times, or the state actors just have to assume that they are being viewed at all times. And you know, in a sense, that is a perfectly democratic way of understanding the state. But the the limits of that are both that, as Bentham found, he couldn't actually practically build the panopticon. It was too expensive and too difficult to build. He couldn't get support for it. And even if he did, as we you know, would understand it now, um, the prisoners subject to the panopticon would go mad uh, and would not be able to function as human beings. And I think the ideal of perfect transparency lends itself to a government that either does nothing or doesn't work at all or, or limits what it can do. So to get back to the question of conspiracy theory, uh, in the same way that conspiracy theory imagines this perfectly operating state that is, um, uh, that is able to engage, or you know, per, by perfectly operating state, I mean a perfectly operating conspiracy that's able to utilize the tools of the state to engage in these nefarious actions and do so efficiently and effectively, uh, which for anyone who actually studies the way in which the state operates is very, very difficult to accomplish. Um, so the dream of transparency, whether you know, by right-thinking, good government, state actors, or by advocates, um, imagines the possibility of a state that can't actually work. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so, um, in terms of, I mean, would you say then that there's a link between conspiracy theorists and, and transparency advocates who are both calling for the truth to be revealed? I wouldn't want to go that far because no. that uh, because that's un well I'd want to say that's unfair to both but that would sort of be <laughs> un uh, the transparency advocates in particular would be uh, uh, very unhappy with that and and, and rightly so uh, what I would what I would say is that they share a particular populist doubt about the state that in each of each of them imagine a a sort of uh, uh, illusionary direct democratic 
relationship between the public and the state. Um, the conspiracy theorist longs for the ability to uh, the ability to have a state that they can understand and have a state that they can trust in uh, and uh, that they can know precisely what's going on, as does the uh, as do transparency advocates. And both of them, because of their radical doubts about the, the state and, and their belief in the meaningfulness of the secret, uh, that behind the secret lies some sort of nefarious anti-democratic activity. They both wish for, long for a state that they can direct, that the public can directly control. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, your paper here at the conference focuses on the history of the transparency movement. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and comment on how important that history is for thinking about sort of where we are here and now? Well, I, uh, uh, the paper was trying to um, resurrect the, the not so much the original meanings of freedom of information and right to know as to say to folks, we're utilizing terms like transparency and concepts like open government uh, in ways that have a history. And understanding that history is not just an academic enterprise, it's a recognition of the limits of what it is that one is trying to accomplish. Uh, because the the uh, these efforts have been tried before, and you know they've been incredibly successful in lots of ways, but in their um, derivation uh, comes certain um, uh, understandings of uh, certain conditions of possibility uh, that we can't just simply wipe clean. Uh, and so situating the emergence of uh, the United States version of these things, because the American Freedom of Information Act was the first sort of modern Freedom of Information Act, and helped set terms uh, both implicitly and explicitly, because the folks who were involved in the original Freedom of Information movement were doing so in the emergence of the Cold War, and saw themselves explicitly creating a mo an American model uh, of legal rights and of governance that they hope to export. Uh, now, depending upon how one looks at the Cold War, that sounds quite nefarious. Uh, and, you know, to an extent it was because it was about creating a model that could fight uh, the, um, the creep of uh, the Soviets and, and uh, socialism. Uh, but it also, in, you know, arguably more benign ways, was about creating a model that has now been exported by NGOs around the world. And so going back and understanding where these terms came from, the political economy of advocacy, I think is an important uh, role for you know, folks from cultural studies and historians to play. Mm. And you, you spoke about the move from rights-based um, advocacy to what, could you t talk about what the most recent manifestation of that is? Well, I, there are two broad movements that I think are in the last 15 to 20 years of sort of I wouldn't say occupied the field, but have but have caught the imaginary, uh, particularly of funders uh, for uh, international rights movements, uh, as well as domestic um, uh, transparency, uh, and are worth viewing in opposition to, as also uh, as well as as somewhat consistent with the older rights-based movement. So, I talk about Transparency International and the. Uh, the uh, international anti-corruption movement uh, uh, or anti-corruption industry, as one anthropologist calls it, uh, that has gone abroad uh, 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 spinning off from the World Bank, 
and sought to uh, both create legal reforms and create norms that uh, local NGOs could take up and, and attempt to uh, uh, enforce uh, on uh, governments in order to achieve a better uh, better governance practices and to fight corruption and you know there is absolutely nothing wrong with it and everything right with it but it's worth understanding it's situating uh, it's being situated within um, international financial institutions and NGOs that have a particular vision of the state uh, that view the coming of transparency not in the first instance as the coming of uh, a sort of accountable democracy uh, but in the first instance as a way of achieving um, better governance practices in order to achieve more efficient markets uh, and uh, better uh, business and regulatory practices for international capital flows. Yeah. Uh, uh, with the idea, and I think it's important to recognize this and not to see this as some sort of neoliberal plot, although you know to an extent it is, but the story is more complicated than that because they do, and I think they honestly do, feel as though that is a means by which uh, democracy can ultimately occur. That if you can build a country out of poverty, uh, and you know you could then query whether. Um, uh, international capital flows are the best way to build to move people out of uh, out of poverty, but you know obviously that's what their commitment is too. But if you build people out of poverty, then you have a, a more educated citizenry that may well be able to better uh, engage in a democratic project. And how do you see technology as fitting into that second? manifestation? Uh, so the second broad uh, movement towards transparency uh, is what I describe as digital transparency, but I'm sure there's a better way of phrasing it. But uh, uh, in the U.S. in particular, you see this with uh, folks who um, view the coming of network technology and uh, the, uh, the uh, decrease in price of information technology and the ability to uh, store and move information cheaply and efficiently uh, and quickly as a means by which the state can be opened. Uh, so that if the state can merely make its data open, uh, then we, the public, can understand how it is that the state is actually operating. Uh, so there's some interesting shifts here. You've got the, the shift in viewing the state as a repository of information to the state as a repository of vast quantities of data. Uh, and with that is a different vision of state functions and a different vision of the state. And so uh, what these movements are especially effective at is uh, trying to open up the state's uh, service provision sector uh, in ways that can be extremely helpful for folks who are waiting for buses and want on their smartphones to know what the bus schedule is and to know uh, when the next bus will be coming. Uh, and to be able to mash up, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, arrests uh, in a city with Google Maps in order to see uh, patterns of crime uh, and see hot spots of crime to know, you know, if they're going to walk home or take the bus or something like that. These are all extremely helpful uh, ways by which uh, people in cosmopolitan areas with access to uh, relatively expensive, though increasingly cheap, uh, technology uh, can have a better relationship with the state because they can see how the state is working. And the idea is that if people can see how the state is working, the state will inevitably work better uh, in order to respond to that. Uh, 
the limits of that are the vision of the state that that, that, that has embedded within it, which is that the state is a, a repository of data that should be made available as a platform in order for uh, people to, to have access to it and also for entrepreneurs to make use of that information to sell useful products, quote unquote, apps for phones, you know, uh, data that might be useful for industry and the like. Uh, what's missing from that is the more classic understanding of the state as an entity that can regulate, uh, that is engaging in its police powers, uh, uh, and uh, that can redistribute. Um, the idea is that the state is merely a platform for the market and merely an adjunct to the market. And that the auditors become netizens right. who are supposed to watch over that, that data right. and to right. interpret it in exactly. some way. And it assumes that people are capable of understanding that. Now, you know, there are things that the market does reasonably well and that, uh, uh, and so with respect to service provision, there are real advances that this can provide, but that's not just what the state does and that's not what we hope that citizens of a democratic uh, uh, city uh, and state uh, would actually be doing. And is there a certain sense of technological determinism here, in a sense, like if we have the technology, we have to use it? Yeah. Well, so, you know, the interesting patterns here is to see the way in which all of these movements view the state as a problem uh, and as some sort of technology as the fix for that problem. So legal rights become the fix for uh, the state's dysfunction. Uh, so if only we can provide citizens with sufficient rights and the press with sufficient rights as an agent of the people. Uh, then the state will finally be transparent. That's sort of the older model of looking at it. And if only technology can be utilized to pry open the state, then you know the netizens will actually be able to function in a democratic and efficient manner. So how does WikiLeaks fit into that model? Well, WikiLeaks is a great example uh, of the you know the sort of notion that the state is a repository of data. I mean, that is the uh, Julian Assange way of understanding how the state works, and if only we can get folks to go in uh, and pry open that information, if they give it to me, I can then make it available. Uh, so again, the state is a repository of information, and technology can fix that. Uh, but it also, his experiences complicate that because of course he does do that but then he finds a great yawning silence in response uh, that the raw data that he releases even with a world of social media and bloggers is not being processed is not being given the proper context is not being followed up on in the way that he thinks and he's not wrong is essential to the interpretation of information uh, so he ends up going back to somewhat of the older model of working with the institutional press, which he absolutely can't stand and has very difficult relations with, in order to try to make this information uh, available to the public in ways that the public can utilize and understand. But of course then the public doesn't utilize and understand it, at least in the, in the US in the ways that he had hoped. You know, we're still in Iraq and Afghanistan, and to the extent that we pull out, it's not because of the disclosures that WikiLeaks uh, makes. And you know there hasn't been the, the the elections in 2010 in November, following the releases of the Iraq and Afghanistan um, uh, uh, war logs, uh, do have you know those elections do see a major uh, political shift, but not in the direction that he wants. In fact, in the exact opposite direction. So. 
Do you think that WikiLeaks has played any part in um, the Obama administration's response or um, attitude towards openness? Because um, in your in your um, discussion yesterday, you said that the Obama administration had no political advantage from its open government directive, um, and I'm thinking about its response thinking about what you said there and then the response that the Obama administration had to WikiLeaks um, you know do you think that there's a retrenchment that a retrenchment from openness will happen partly because of it has had no political advantage and because of WikiLeaks puts on display the problems with radical transparency uh, well I, I think that um, I, I'm not sure that the Obama administration ever had a vision of uh, radical transparency, no. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, if they did, or even if members of the administration did, um, power has an amazing uh, way of awakening uh, those who hold it to the necessity for some degree of privilege. Uh, so they had long before WikiLeaks came along, um, uh, uh, began. Uh, for example, with the second round of Abu Ghraib photos, uh, attempting to hold uh, hold those back, um, you know, with various different things, with the visitor logs to the White House, with all kinds of different things, they proved disappointing to those who those, you know, sort of old line FOIA activists uh, who thought that there would be a major shift. Uh, instead, the Obama administration has <coughs> has had and continues to have people who are digital transparency folks, uh, or they um, uh, fall within a sort of third, smaller trend that I haven't really discussed in the paper, but the, a later version of the paper would be uh, an idea of targeted transparency, that what we need to do, so this argument goes, is provide transparency that people can use, and we can regulate by virtue of transparency. Uh, this is a much more technocratic vision of transparency, a, more, a, a much more instrumental vision of transparency than the sort of radical uh, democratic transparency that uh, uh, that someone like Assange would have wanted. So uh, I don't think that there's been a retrenchment. There's merely just been an outing of uh, a, a you know further demonstration of the extent to which the Obama administration was marginally better and is marginally better than the Bush administration was on secrecy issues. Uh, but we are no radical Democrats. Mark, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Claire.